he feels about it. Verses 13 through 16. Surely I have cleansed my hands and my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, if I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. Notice how he feels about this. And then verse 16, when I thought to how to understand this, it was too painful for me. It's as if he's saying here, I'm living for no reason. I'm living for no reason. I have cleansed my heart in vain. I'm trying to live right. To what purpose? I'm denying myself. I'm trying to support good works when I could take that money and buy that boat I want. I, I'm trying to support a children's home. I'm trying to support a missionary. I'm trying to support the church. The church needs uh, an addition to the building. The church needs support for the missionaries. And I could take that money I'm giving to the church and I could buy all kinds of things with it. I've done all of this for no reason. There's no gain to it. I've done all of this in vain. I've washed my hands in innocence. I had, I'm avoiding sinful activity, things that I know might bring me a great deal of pleasure. I'm avoiding those. I've denied myself those things. Why? Again, to no purpose. Look at the guy that doesn't deny himself these things, doesn't use his money in those ways, and look at what's happening to him. Doesn't come my way. And then he goes on to say, note this in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I'd have been untrue to the generation of your children. It's as if he says here, I can't even talk about this. If I go to somebody, maybe a trusted Christian friend, and I talk about it, he's, oh, don't talk that way. There's no understanding. If I talk about this, I would be untrue to, to my brethren. I would be untrue to the, to, to the Lord. He sought to understand it, but there was no understanding coming. When I thought to how to understand this, it was too painful for me. It was painful for him to think about this. And so the question comes at this point in the psalm. Is there nothing then for this person or maybe one of us but despair, discouragement, frustration? Is that all there is for the person who's trying to live right and denying himself, take up, taking up his cross on a daily basis, trying to do right, sacrificing for the good of the Lord and for his family and so forth? when he sees the prosperity of the wicked? Is despair all there is? Well, no, because we read on. Until, he says, verse 17, down through verse 20, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. You see, the problem in the first few verses here and the problem with us when we become envious of the wicked We've got the wrong perspective. There are two ways of looking at life. I like to call it the horizontal 
and the vertical. And as long as we look at life on the horizontal and we think that this is all there is and this world is all there is, we're going to be like this guy. We're going to be like Asaph who wrote this psalm. We're going to be frustrated. But you and I know that the horizontal is not all there is. And it wasn't until he went into the sanctuary of God that he put the vertical in his worldview, if you will. When I went into the sanctuary of God, and meaning, of course, there, the temple, I understood what was going on. Let me digress here just a moment. There are some in our brotherhood that are calling for fewer and fewer assemblies each week, wondering what's the value of Wednesday night Bible class? What's the value of Sunday evening services? Here it is right here. The value of those additional services each week is it helps us keep our perspective. It helps us keep our perspective. We go to work, we labor hard, we struggle to make ends meet, and maybe even on the way to the church building, we see that big house on the hill and the evil guy, and we, we get discouraged, but we come into the sanctuary of God. And we sit down and we think and we worship and we ponder and meditate on the word of God. That helps us keep our focus. That keeps that vertical perspective in our life. Then we understand. Then we understand their end. Truth has a way of dispelling false notions. There's a, a Peanuts cartoon I saw many years ago. really like it. Charles Schultz, the guy that drew, drew the Peanuts cartoon, of course, he's passed away a long time ago, was a very religious man, not a Christian as you and I would understand it, but a very religious man. And in one of the cartoons, Linus, you know, Linus was the guy with the, with the blanket, but he was kind of a, a philo amateur philosopher. And uh, he was talking with Lucy. And they were looking out the window, and it was pouring down rain. And uh, Lucy said something to the effect of, if it keeps raining like this, the world is going to flood. And Linus says, well, no, because the Lord promised us that will never happen again. And so Lucy responds, well, that's a comforting thought to which Linus says, good theology will do that. <laughs> I like that. Good theology will dispel false notions. Good theology will dispel this false notion that the writer Asaph has. And an understanding was achieved by Asaph. When was it achieved? When he went into the sanctuary of God, when he went into the presence of God, when he sat down and he meditated, as my brother would say, cogitated on the existence of God and the things of God, then, then, then it all comes into focus. And then in verses 21 down through verse 28, a new attitude is now displayed. Well, let me back up and say this. I hadn't planned on saying this, but I think we got time. Notice that he says how they are brought to desolation in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. It's hard for us to appreciate this, but you know those guys that live that way, they're going to get their comeuppance. Not that we should rejoice when that happens. We don't like for bad things to happen to anybody. But we kind of feel a little bit of, uh, of a tinge of satisfaction, I guess. When we read about that guy that owns that stuff up on the, up, up on the hill 
and we find out something horrible has happened to him, his life has collapsed, <laughs> we kind of feel a little tinge of satisfaction and it comes to help us understand, you know, God's in control. God will take care of that situation. But notice verse 28 and following. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all the, the, those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. A new attitude is now displayed by this man. It changed when he came, as we suggested, into the sanctuary of God. Now, ask yourself this question. What has changed? All right, now it's time for y'all to talk. What's changed? This perspective. What about the wicked? They're still wicked. <laughs> it's the end game, right? I don't know who said that, but yeah, it's the end game. They're still wicked. They're, they're still prosperous. Nothing has changed but Asaph's attitude. We might drive by that big house and we may see it and we may be jealous and envious and we, we come into the sanctuary of God and the only thing that's going to change when we go back out that door at least immediately is our attitude and the way we look at things. But that attitude can change when we get our perspective right, when we get our focus right. What has changed is the writer's attitude and the writer's understanding. And at the close of the psalm, the truth of verse 1 is affirmed. God really is good to Israel, to such as are of a clean heart. And he says, I will begin to proclaim that because you hold me in your right hand. I have no one in heaven but you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The truth is affirmed of verse one, as well as the fact that God will deal properly with the prosperous wicked. Now let's ask this question. Why do the wicked prosper? What say ye? Why do the wicked prosper? Ah, this guy's been reading my notes. That's exactly right. There are some principles to remember. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. You know, just because a person is righteous, and one of the things I love, Mary and I were out west recently, and uh, you know, we drove through uh, Iowa, and uh, man, the corn and beans out there stretch forever and ever. It's unbelievable. And suppose a guy who is righteous owns a farm and it joins the guy who's unrighteous. Well, the rain doesn't rain on one and not the other, does it? If uh, an unrighteous man is selling cars 
We might not want to deal with him because he's dishonest, but if he sells a good product, we're going to buy it anyway. The point being is there are certain principles that exist in this life and God doesn't suspend those rules. We're going to talk about that again in a moment, but turn, we looked at Matthew 5, 45 already. Turn to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Somebody read that for us. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. All right, the ant provides a lesson here for us and that lesson is true whether one is wicked or righteous. Someone turn to read Galatians chapter six, verses six through nine. Galatians six, six through nine. Okay, the, ro the rule, we could even say the law of sowing and reaping applies to everybody. Doesn't just apply to the righteous. Driving down through this beautiful countryside, and by the way, I told my wife as we we're coming up here yesterday, I said, you know, we saw some beautiful country out there in the mountains, Rocky Mountains and all that, but it ain't any prettier in Middle Tennessee. <laughs> but driving down through there, I couldn't tell which, which uh, cornfield belonged to the righteous and which belong to the unrighteous. I can tell whose beans those were. No way to know because the principles hold true. There are certain laws that exist that apply to everyone. And so God does not, and I'm behind on my clicking here. Sorry about that. God does not suspend the rules when the wicked are involved. And the reality is some take advantage of the rules. If God did suspend the rules when the wicked are involved, what would, what would happen? What would we have? What? What say ye? Okay. God wants everybody to come to him. So if he exclude the wicked, that's a motivation for them to not come. God would be unjust. That's exactly right. But what would happen if God suspended all the rules? Chaos. chaos that's the word I'm looking for. It'd be chaos because we all depend on those rules, don't we? And again, an aside, you ever thought about how much of your life you take on faith? 
How many of you set your alarm clock last night? Raise your hand. Why'd you do that? That's an act of faith, is it not? All right. How many of you drove or rode with somebody over here to the church building this morning? You didn't, you didn't ride with somebody? Did you walk? Ah. Okay. Let me, was there any traffic coming when you... Okay. It's always one that ruins your illustration. Okay. Those of you that rode or drove, did you meet any oncoming traffic when you... Well, come, raise your hand if you did. You realize you're driving the, the building here today was an act of faith? You have faith that that guy coming at you is going to stay in his lane. When you approach a traffic signal that's green, you have faith that the guy coming the other direction is going to stop at the red light. Now, I recognize sometimes that doesn't work, but it's an act of faith. So many things we do, we do by faith. We have faith in the laws that God has put in place. And if they were not in place, chaos would result. Now we got a few minutes left here. Let's, let's draw some lessons from this. First, someone said down here that God is just. Look again at verses 17 down through verse 20. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They're utterly consumed with terrors as dream when one awakes. So Lord, when you, when you awake, you shall despise their image. This is a principle in which we place our faith that God is just. Jesus told a parable and we call it the parable of, of the workers in the vineyard. And this master of the vineyard goes into the place where the workers are on a daily basis and he hires them and he contracts with them for a denarius. And so they go to the field to work. And then at various times during the day, he goes back to hire more workers. But the text tells us that he says simply to these, go work in my vineyard and I will give you what is right doesn't specify an amount. The day is ended and the time comes to settle up with his day workers and the master calls the last ones hired, the ones hired at the 11th hour and he pays them a denarius. The ones who contracted for a denarius a day are thinking, oh boy, we're going to get more because he paid them a denarius for just an hour. Uh-uh. He paid all of them a denarius. Those who bore the burden in the heat of the day, as the text says, were upset because they expected more. And Jesus says in the parable, did the master do wrong? Did he not treat each one fairly, justly? Did he not do exactly what he said he was going to do with each one of those? And indeed he did. Here's the principle that we can take away this morning of nothing else. God will treat you fairly. God is just. Ultimately, God will do right by all, both the wicked and the righteous. That parable, by the way, is in Matthew chapter 20. 
A second lesson. We should not be jealous and envious of the wicked because we labor for the food which endures to everlasting life, John 6, 27. If our perspective is right, we're not laboring in this life for that big house and cars. There's nothing wrong with having, being prosperous, being a good businessman and being prosperous. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not our goal in life. Our goal in life is to get to heaven. And if that's our goal, if we're laboring for the food which endures to everlasting life, John 6 and verse 27, then our perspective will be completely different. When I was at Freed Hardeman College, I love to tell this story. Tom Holland, who was our teacher and preaching his work, took us on a field trip one day. And if you've ever been to Henderson, seen Freed Hardeman, it's right smack downtown and just a couple of blocks from the main entrance of the campus, at least back in that time, was the funeral home. And Brother Holland took us down there because he said, you guys that are going to be preaching. You need to know what happens at a funeral. You know how to act and how to behave yourself. And so we went down there and the funeral home director was very gracious. He'd been doing it for years for Brother Holland. And so he took us all around the funeral home and showed us uh, everything. And we went into what he called the selection room. And that was the place where they had the caskets and the vaults and all of this kind of thing. And uh, over on one side, he had a closet. And I noticed that hanging in that closet were gowns for ladies and some suits for men. And he was talking to everybody else over here. And I kind of walked over there and I inspected one of those suits. And I noticed the jacket had a flap like this. But you know what? There was no pocket. And I looked inside and they even had a slit right here but there was no pocket. The old truth, there are no pockets on a burial shroud is true. Two guys were discussing the death of a very wealthy man and one asked the other, how much money did he leave his wife? The second one said, all of it. You can't take it with you. One of these days, we're all going to leave the possessions of this life. Then finally, and this is one I want the young people to think about and remember. Should we serve God just to be blessed? Should we serve God because he blesses us? Is that our motivation to serve God? Should we bless, uh, serve God only if he blesses us with prosperity? You see, that was the fault this man was making at the beginning. Look again at the first couple of verses. I was envious of the wicked. God is good to Israel, to such as a pure heart. But as for me, he's not blessed me like he does the wicked. That's faulty thinking. We do not serve God just because he blesses us. We not, do not serve God to be blessed. Why do we serve God? Again, what say ye? What? We love, him. we love him. Somebody else said something. Hope for eternal life. Hope for eternal life. Anybody else? He already blessed us. Beg pardon? He already us. He's already blessed us in many ways. We just sometimes don't know it. Don't you think about what God has done for us. 
you know, when we were living in, I'm sure many of you reared in the church, but when we were living in the world, we didn't realize how God had blessed us. Anybody else? All these are good answers. That's exactly right. But you know what? You serve God for all of those reasons. But I'm reminded of what uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to Nebuchadnezzar. God will deliver us from this burning fiery furnace. But even if God doesn't deliver us, what'd they say? We will not serve you. We will serve God. You know why? Because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Look again at Psalm 73, verse 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all of your works. Now, the reality is God will bless those that serve him. Maybe not in ways we think he ought to, but he will. He will give us all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Sometime this afternoon, go and read the first chapter of the book of Ephesians and count the blessings that God has given us. And then try to figure up, if you will, the monetary value of those blessings. I think that will help us to keep that vertical perspective. Let's close our class with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're so very thankful to you for all the things, all the blessings that you do give us. We're mindful, Father, that we have so many spiritual blessings that we cannot count them. But we're also mindful, Father, at this time that many of us here in this assembly have been richly blessed physically. We live in a wealthy country. We have more than we need. We have many of our wants supplied and we pray, Father, we'll never take these things for granted and that we'll never allow them to become the focus of our life. Help us, Father, to continue to come into the sanctuary of God and keep that vertical perspective in our life. We're thankful for this great psalm. We're thankful for the fact that you preserved it for us, that we can learn this great lesson this morning. Now, Father, as we dismiss this class, we pray your blessings as we go into our worship in just a few moments. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.